This is Agency Side, telling the stories of starting, growing, and selling digital agencies. Sponsored by Natrilla.com, the CRM system for SEOs and digital marketers. Now, here's your host, Rob Carey. I'm joined today by Mark Williams Cook, the co founder and marketing director of Candor, a Norwich based digital marketing and design agency. Welcome to Agency Side, Mark. Hi, Rob. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Now, Candor launched back in 2016, but I've known you since you were at another agency called Further. I had in my head that you owned the agency Further, then sold it and started Candor, but your LinkedIn profile shows a lot more than this. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started and where you worked before starting Candor? That's almost right. But I'd say I'll go back, like you say, how we started. So I think like quite a few people in the industry, I actually started with my own kind of websites before I got to move agency side. And that, again, I think like many people was it was an accident. So I was building websites from quite a young age. And it so happened one of them one day actually started to get traffic and used to be able to kind of just import an Amazon affiliate store in kind of PHP Nuke. It was like a one button setup, no value add. It was just like their storefront. And we worked out that the traffic was coming from search engines. And that started this exploration for me of, it made me think, you know, this question of, huh, well, why am I ranking for this DVD player search? And that that's what started me down the road of SEO. And actually for the, the first few years of my, I don't know if you'd call it a career, but doing SEO was at home and I thought I'd cracked it because I was making some money, you know, eating cereal, sitting in my pants thinking, you know, I was doing really well. And probably everyone's feeling this now, but after what was then a two, three years of working, doing that pretty much at home, it really gets to the stage of looking out the window, wondering if that pigeon's going to come back. It was kind of lonely and not good for me from a social slash mental health point of view. And that was then I took a first step, an opportunity to start at a small kind of agency locally and I took that and that was really my first agency job and that was brilliant because it exposed me to a load of people that were smarter than me and you know working with actual kind of clients and I think I was there for a, a couple of years that first role and quite early on I had the offer to join further and at the time further was only a kind of web design and build agency there weren't many just SEO agencies about at the time so I joined further and I think it was a team of four or five when I joined and I was the digital marketing department uh, slowly over sort of five six years I helped them build that into you know what it is now is basically just an SEO agency that was a really interesting journey for me because from my point of view I greatly benefited because some of the founders at Further had an actual, you know, traditional with qualifications and everything marketing background. And that was completely new to me because I had come into, you know, SEO is considered part of the marketing mix. Now I came into that with zero marketing knowledge, you know, and my first meetings at my first agency sitting around the table, people saying things like above the line and below the line was all very confusing and alien to me. So I was, I was really lucky. Um, looking back, I wish I'd kind of, you know, learned even more from these people that were really my mentors. A few years in, they, they made the offer. So you said about me owning the agency, they did give me um, a small part ownership in that, which was great because I think I was looking back very young to have that. And I was at further quite a long while and really important part of my career. And I did decide eventually to leave and I kind of had a career break there and I sold my bit of further back to them and sort of left on very good 
terms. And actually further now, I don't know if you've seen, they've got acquired. So congratulations to everyone there. That was last year and they're now called Gravity Global. Canda was a similar story. So I worked at a few agencies between actually further and Canda, but Canda was really different to everywhere else I've been. So when I joined Canda, so it's a little bit complicated. It was actually called Applin Skinner. And again, it was a situation where it was primarily a design and build agency. I knew one of the two existing founders very well, John Skinner. And essentially they came straight to me with an offer for kind of equal ownership again if I would help them on this journey of setting up this digital marketing side of the company and that's where that all started and eventually we were kind of reborn if you like as as candor so I've, I've tried it's it's kind of a long complicated story I've tried to keep it short there but that that's how I ended up from starting SEO 15 16 years ago to where I am now. And I remember you attending some of the earlier SEO meetups back when the community hung out on Search Engine Watch and Webmaster World and Threadwatch many years ago. And I used to go by the handle of Evil Green Monkey and used to be the Taffer Boy back when people used those kind of internet handles. What are your earliest memories of the SEO industry as a whole and how much do you think it's changed since then? I spent a lot of time on forums like uh, digital point and site point I spent a lot of time on and I think it was a completely different place the industry I think because it was a lot smaller naturally there was a lot more signal to noise and I don't mean that in a bad way I actually mean it from if you're learning get involved in SEO I think again partially probably because SEO was a bit more simple then I think it was easier to learn in some ways in that there were fewer people talking about it and there was more agreement in probably the simpler principles of what was involved and it was a small community to get involved in. And you know, in comparison to now, the industry's orders of magnitude is larger. If you try and Google kind of anything about SEO, you'll be hammered by websites and blogs that give you everything on the spectrum of opinion as to whether something's kind of right or wrong. So, it, you know, it's definitely changed, um, especially we've got events. Probably the most prominent is something like Brighton SEO, how that's changed over the years. So I think that I spoke at the second Brighton SEO, which was 30 people. 40 people in a room and now obviously it's this huge um huge venue so it, it's interesting in that i think the community is a lot bigger it's a lot more diverse which is really really great but in many ways i think it can be difficult for newer people in the industry to get a good handle on on what's going it's a little bit of potluck as to i think where they land uh, where they start their career you mentioned your Amazon affiliate fortune before, and uh, did you ever see SEO as a fast way of making money, or were you purely interested in the challenge or the game of it? It's an interesting question. So I think money has always been secondary to me, and it took me a long time to kind of work out without getting too philosophical what I wanted you know, from life, if you like. And autonomy is very important to me as a person and that always comes to me secondary to to money so I'd rather you know make less money and have kind of more control of my life than maybe make more money and have less control the thing that attracted me to SEO as I said I stumbled on it by accident it was essentially a set of interesting problems that I could manage that seemed to be able to generate me money which was which was really good and this led me down several different paths of learning so apart from SEO you know I did stuff that I don't think 
I would do today. So I worked with a developer many years back when StumbleUpon was a thing and we made a program called AutoStumble that traded social votes for people, you know, incredibly spammy. It worked really well and we sold that software. It was more, I, I just see a problem, you know, for instance, I want people to see my YouTube video and I can get traffic through StumbleUpon, but it's really difficult to get going. So how can I get around this problem? And a lot of the time the solution came from some kind of automation or programming. I, I tend to veer away from things like that because, you know, I want the web to be as nice place as it can be. I don't think I've ever seen it just as kind of an easy way to make money, but I've appreciated that it's allowed me to make a living in a way that kind of suits how I like to live. Now, I thought that Neil Patel was the only SEO that became a YouTube celebrity, but I believe that you had your 15 minutes of fame as well <laughs> on YouTube. So yeah, outside of kind of the SEO sphere, but this is linked to actually what I was just talking about with this auto stumble thing. So I got involved in doing videos when people were still using, were, were disparate across all these different platforms. It wasn't really just YouTube and Vimeo. We had Google Video before they bought YouTube. And this was one of the things I used auto stumble to promote, which was videos. And it just so happened one of the videos I uploaded ended up with like 90 million views and that had been seeded through uh, StumbleUpon. And that was a time when the YouTube partner thing was just coming about. So I got an email from them saying, join on, join this partner program. You're getting a lot of traffic. And in those days, you know, in the tens of millions was a huge amount of, of views for YouTube. So this video was in the top 10 comedy videos on YouTube for all time for years. You know, now 90 million isn't such a significant um, number. And if you look at the video, uh, it's still on there. It's in like 420p or something. It's barely even watchable anymore. But yeah, I touched on YouTube, but it, if, even if that was an option for me, you know, I would never have, I'm not the right type of person to be kind of as visible as that, if you like. I think it requires a, a special kind of personality that I'm not. I mean, I get involved in the community in my own way, you know, and I like to join conversations, but I'm, I wouldn't certainly consider myself very industry facing. You know, I don't talk at many events, especially not anymore. You know, I talk on Twitter a fair bit, but YouTube celebrity is, is, was never really on the cards for me. <laughs> I don't have the right pajamas for it either. <laughs> and uh, you've been working more recently on two SEO kind of side projects, the first of which was uh, writing one unsolicited SEO tip a day on LinkedIn. How did that come about? There isn't any minimum bar for you to be able to say that you're an SEO or you are an SEO agency or whatever. You basically just have to say you do it and that's pretty much your your license to go and practice SEO, which is which is fine. However, it does lead to problems, and I'm sure you've seen that over the years, of companies getting burned by people at one end just completely have no idea what they're doing. Other ends, maybe somewhere on that spectrum, maybe putting companies at risk without making that clear. And you see this when you're inside the industry, you see this a lot. And it's not good practice to be going around saying, oh, look what they're doing. That's not good. That's not good. So all of this idea, search knowledge, this unsolicited SEO tips was like, right, I'm just going to start putting information out there, which in my opinion is, you know, as objective as it can be for SEO. I want to make it accessible. I want to try and pull away from the it depends kind of things, because I do think that's difficult and scary for business owners maybe who don't have knowledge of SEO. I just want to present these little nuggets of information, which I try 
as hard as I can to make them as self-contained as true and true as possible. So I can just drip feed it to them. And the idea is that hopefully if people share these and they take them in as businesses, as beginners to SEO, as people who need it, but don't quite know what they're buying, they'll make better buying decisions. And my hope is that even if it's not us, they will choose a better SEO freelancer or a better SEO agency to work with. They'll get results, they'll be happy, and that brings the whole industry up. So th- that, that was where I started with those um, tips. As, as it happened, they, they actually got way more popular than I thought they would. And I think that's just through dogged consistency. So I'm up to like 460 or something now. So it's coming on for two years pretty much of of work so i just do one every work day don't do them obviously if i'm on holiday or anything but basically every day i am at work i will do one and i haven't run out yet (laughs) we're probably getting close (laughs) and another project that you've been working on recently is also ask.com which is where you put in a keyword and it shows you every related people also asked question that google shows on their search results what are your plans for the tool and will it remain free yeah again this is a great example of john just kind of letting me play around and and have some experimentation so with our content strategies plans we were making we found we were using the people also ask feature of google quite a lot to help inform the intent of the articles and and help with this research and we'd played around normally doing seo of building various tools to help ourselves and this one stuck out to me because this information wasn't easily accessible elsewhere. There was a couple of scripts that existed that we linked to on our homepage that people can run locally on the command line in Python. But these aren't, you know, although everyone in SEO apparently knows Python now, I don't think it's always the most accessible way to do things, especially I think there's a big audience for people who are just doing content writing and have no interest in working out how to install dependencies and whatever. So we got the alpha version of Also Asked up in November 2019 in a few weeks. And that was our first kind of foray into a SaaS type web-based model. And I was like, wow, you know, we got it up in a few weeks. This thing will be wrapped up and ready to go in a a few months. And a year later, (laughs) we're now just really testing the beta. So there was a lot of work in the background that had to go into the infrastructure and scaling and all that kind of boring stuff. Um, The plans to answer your question is there will always be a free version of it. It's not going to remain totally free. Um, I've been pretty open with that about anyone who's asked. It, It says on the site at the moment, you can sign up and it's essentially a free beta version, meaning you have access to everything as if when it becomes charged, you're paying for it. And the reason it can't be free basically is this last 30 day period or this coming up 30 days, it looks like we're going to hit over a million users in this month and obviously all those people are doing multiple searches so actually there's quite a lot of expense going into keeping that all running smoothly again without going into boring detail and there seems to be a demand for it Um, I've had tons of positive feedback about it lots of people sharing it naturally I haven't really had to promote it which is all a good sign so that's something you know as an agency anyway we've been doing we've got a few different products that we have so this I'm hoping will be another one of them 
I spoke on a previous episode with another agency that offered both digital marketing and web design and development. And the reasoning for that was they found that on their earliest clients, they weren't able to implement the SEO recommendations that were being made. So they started offering web development services as well. So not only could they make the recommendations, but they could implement them on the website. Is that what Candle's approach is, or do you see them as very different clients and separate those client relationships out? This is interesting. So going back to those first agencies I joined, I think the reason they existed as web development agencies to begin with was that that was a known quantity to clients. So they almost built the initial relationship and trust on the, look, we've built your website. You can see it. You can kind of touch it. Now let's talk about this weird SEO stuff. I don't think that's the case anymore. So a lot of our business comes just with people off the bat saying, you know, I would I would like SEO. For me, it's really important. So we have a couple of different components inside the agency. So we've got in-house developers, in-house designers, and in-house SEO and BBC people. And as I said before about SEO becoming a more complicated thing, I think that's definitely happened in terms of if you drew a Venn diagram of all these services and how they've overlapped over time. The 80% of SEO just used to be basically, in my opinion, you know, links and keywords pretty much and you could get a lot of stuff to rank if you push those two buttons hard enough i think it's a lot more nuanced now and you know content nowadays isn't just about walls of text you know we've got podcasts like this we've got videos google's a lot smarter with stuff like images we've got much more diverse universal search with requirements for top stories and news and different schema so things i think are a lot more disparate now and, and in my opinion especially now everyone's talking about core web vitals and performance in my opinion you need developers to do a really great job of this so the developers that we have in-house are really really good at seo because we've had them working closely with the team over the years to to learn SEO inside and out from a technical point of view. And it's really helpful if we do, for instance, a technical audit for someone. I don't personally like it when an agency does a technical audit and they basically just list, here are your core web vital scores or whatever tool we've used, and you should go and fix that. What I think is really helpful is when you've got developers who have got that in-depth knowledge of not just what needs to be done, but how it needs to be done and what the impact will be and how difficult those changes might be. And, you know, to give you an example of this, we had um, one of our larger clients on a fairly well-known enterprise CMS kind of system, and we'd given them a technical audit and they had some in-house developers and they had sort of a year to try and implement some of these things. And it came about that they thought they couldn't do them. And we got our developers involved. And literally within a month, we'd help them implement some of these things just because they've been doing this in different scenarios, you know, day in, day out. We were able to offer that that value that of, of just giving them the confidence to, to take some different approaches. And the same applies with things like having the design team. So anyone, you know, working in content will, you know, will tell you it's not just enough to produce these, you know, you can't just churn out like infographics and email them to people anymore. So apart from all the research and work that goes into content, being able to design it, present it, package it up in a way that's attractive and and raise the bar on quality, I think is important. Problem's almost the other end of where do you draw the line? Because that's something we're quite strict with as an agency, which is we've got our defined few core services and we don't 
almost want scope creep in our agency. We want to stick at doing what we're specialists at doing. If it's outside of that, we'll get other people involved and we'll be open about that with the client and just do that introduction directly. Do you think that Candor is stronger with multiple co-founders? Is it greater than some of its parts? And would you have started your own agency without John, do you think? So I absolutely love working with John and through probably chance, I guess, because we certainly didn't certainly didn't plan it, our personalities really balance each other out in that John is very detail orientated. So John's background is actually he's he's got a law degree, but he ended up in brand and design for many years. And he's super detail orientated. And I'm kind of the opposite, I guess, in many ways, business wise, I'm more of a bigger picturey kind of person. I'm less interested in some of the the details. He's more risk adverse than I am. So he absolutely stops me uh, making mistakes all of the time. And I think I help push him to do things, maybe explore areas that he wouldn't have gone to before. So definitely we are stronger as a team. And yeah, I really enjoy working with John. So again, on a kind of personal friendship basis, he's, you know, I think he's got a really great kind of moral compass. While he's got a lot of business acumen, the, the money isn't necessarily at the top of the list for him so it's really great that as a company you know we can have this autonomy we can feel good about it and would I have found a candle without him I, I don't think I would know to be honest. You told me a while ago that candle wasn't built simply to sell it and that you pick your clients very carefully it's, it's more about having fun and a connection with clients than the brand prestige or revenue for the agency is this still true and do you think there's many other agencies that are run like this? I think again the parallel between John and I is we've we've worked at various agencies throughout the years. Um, so I've worked in agencies in Brighton and in Norwich. So I've had quite an exposure to different agencies, and you know it worked well for both of us in that we function well within agencies, we get results. But one thing I did find, I think it's just in the nature of agencies because of their business model, which is normally. Depend, you know, some agencies have a twist on it, but it's pretty much selling hours to clients at a very basic level. I think they are set up to easily become toxic places to work, basically. And, you know, it's quite common in agencies to see people working late. It's quite common for people to be overworked and stressed. And when you dig into this and when you've been in that situation, I think a lot of that comes down to building it to sell it and scaling it. And this drive to we must hit this revenue target, which which pushes you to make you know, when that's your strategy, when that's your lighthouse that you're following of, you know, the primary objective is this 50%, whatever increase in revenue or 100%, whatever it is, that means you're not all agencies, but the majority will be pushed towards decisions they otherwise wouldn't have made, whether it's over promising to a client to win it, or God forbid, discounting to win a client, um, or maybe onboarding someone you don't think it's going to quite work out. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of complex reasons why this happens, you know, especially as well, the, the person doing the sale, if you like, in the agency normally isn't the person responsible for delivery. So they can kind of move on once it's signed. They have their own motivation agenda that's maybe not aligned with the rest of the team or the agency. And, you know, this creates a uh, situation where I think the best metric for how an agency is doing overall 
health-wise is the staff turnover. If you've got high staff turnover, then obviously people, for whatever reason, aren't happy and you're not getting continuity with clients and you're not keeping talent. So that's the main symptom to me. So when we started Candor and core to this was, I want this to be a good place to work. And by good, I didn't mean, you know, we'll stick slides and pool tables everywhere. You know, those are whatever they're fun things, but I just didn't want to make it a not nice place to work. And to me, that comes down to what kind of work are you giving the people that are actually there, aligning what they want to achieve in their life and their careers with what you can offer them and not having this misalignment between where the company wants to go and this direction of of staff happiness. And that comes down to, I've gone around this a very long way to picking clients carefully, which is our namesake and why it came about was we took this approach naturally with clients, which was if we encounter clients that have or potential clients that either don't have the right budget to do what they want to do or their expectations are sky high or if they're trying to essentially force us into working in a way or to metrics we're not comfortable with, then we just turn it down. And that's led to, you know, like in 2020, we had zero staff turnover. We've got 15 people in the agency now. Uh, we're still hiring. And the the client retention also is really, really good. I'm aware it means we don't grow as quickly um, as as, a, as other agencies, and I'm completely fine with that. The end goal of Canda for us isn't to sell it. What I'm interested in kind of longer term is we've got tools like Also Asked, we've got our SEO plugin that's pretty popular. I like developing these scalable ways of making money within the business as well. And the last thing we do to kind of solidify that is I'm not aware of any other agency that does this, but we just have a direct profit share with every single member of staff that's been with us for more than a year. So you join us, you work with us for a year, you get put into this profit pool, which is, you know, no small print, no EMI share schemes on leaving on these conditions. It's just at the end of the year, everyone gets a share of the profit. So when we do start, for instance, generating revenue from also asked, everyone in the team is going to benefit from that. I'm noticing more and more SEO agencies talk about their revenues and their client numbers, almost like what you see in the affiliate and the influencer and the indie hacker communities. Do you think it's okay to start small and stay small as an agency, or is the pure goal to get as big as you can? The complexity of an agency doesn't scale linearly with its size. So managing an agency of 40 people is not twice as complicated as managing an agency of 20 people. Uh, It's a lot harder. I think it comes down to, you know, what you want to achieve when you start the business, really. I think it's a trap in that it's very easy to get stars in your eyes and think, okay, well, I want, you know, this big multi-million pound agency and I want to work with these brands. And I think that's absolutely great for the people that want to do that it just comes down to i think what you want to achieve when when you build the agency it's absolutely fine to you know build small stay small obviously you've got people who choose still just to operate as freelancers and they charge a premium for that and that's absolutely great for them you know when you win kind of household names i do think that's great it's always a morale boost for the staff because you know they like being able to go to their friends say oh you know i'm working on this account and everyone knows knows who it is The downside, I think, from a business point of view is that because those brands are desirable to work with for agencies, primarily because those agencies are using them as a vehicle to get more business, is that the loyalty is very hard to win. Because I think I heard um, someone else on your podcast saying about 
other agencies kind of pitching for your clients, you know, that's going to be happening a lot with these household names. So you'll have someone offering to do something else, something, you know, the next shiny thing or doing what what you're doing cheaper. So, you know, it again, it swings and roundabouts. They'll, wherever there's a gap in the market, it will be filled. So I think there's room for, for everyone and you just have to think about what do you truly want? Do you want a big agency? Will that make you happy? Or do you want something in between or something smaller? Yeah, we experienced that in my previous agency where we worked with one of the biggest mobile phone companies in the UK. And every year, basically, the contract comes up for renewal and it's a reverse auction to see who has the lowest prices as if the quality of the work wasn't important. It was just the cost of the work. I think one of the biggest issues that most agencies face is that they have very little value outside of their billable hours. There's no amazing software or magic source that's exclusive to them. Everyone's kind of on the same level. So the owners have to build their companies as big as possible until it becomes too big in billables and clients for the W. PPs and the publicist groups of the world to ignore them. Is the key to a small, happy, profitable agency purely down to building IP, intellectual property and value-added assets, do you think? That's a really interesting question. <laughs> so when I joined what is now Canda, so it used to be called Aplin Skinner in 2013 when it, when it started, it wasn't a particularly profitable agency. And certainly when I came in, um, we had to make lots of sort of structural changes and make that leap that's very, there's, there's a few kind of inflection points in agencies where you have to make these leaps, I think, from kind of like five or six people to 10 people, and then all the processes go out the window. So, and any growth, I think, normally, not always, but normally comes at the expense of profit because you're having to invest in new people, new systems, and you know that software that you're using to manage workflow for five people doesn't work for 20. So there's a lot of steps there. And I think we've got to a stage where our plan staff-wise is, we've always said around 20. That's where we want to get to. And we think when we're around there in terms of revenue and profit, it just becomes a mission for us then to work on profitability and focus on that rather than revenue growth. So the kind of IP software tools and what's your USP, I think is an interesting conversation because every agency by default has some reason why you know, they're unique and why you should work with them. I think it can be disingenuous for us to say that, you know, as an SEO agency, that we've got anything that's super unique and special. I don't necessarily think that exists. I don't think it has to exist because, you know, SEO agencies aren't just something just stacking on shelves. Each one is different, has different people, different culture, different ways of working. They're set up with slightly different textures of people there. And I honestly think that one SEO agency that may seem very similar to another from the outside are probably completely different to work with and give different experiences to that client. So that matching up, while I don't think enough time from client or agency side is put between making those matches. From our point of view, though, what I see as our strengths, which you know, aren't certainly aren't unique, but I think our strengths are that I've specifically hired people in our SEO and PVC team that are very experienced, have got a track record and really know what they're doing. And this has allowed us when we engage with clients not to have this approach essentially that's just documented and say, okay, well, this is the first thing we do and this is the first thing we check and follow this formula when teams scale to be larger, you, in in some ways you have to do this to, to make it profitable because you need more junior people and they need more guidance, but you end up with a more formulaic approach. The scalability of just kind of selling 
hours and you know i've seen other agencies as well have conversations about saying we don't charge per day or per hour we charge on value or whatever but it it essentially still works out to your cost base is the amount of hours and the salary you're paying your staff so that doesn't scale i think well really large so for us the other bits that we can offer like also ours like our like seo are really important to our business plan because they they scale and we can have this kind of hybrid model have you achieved a work-life balance that you're happy with right now? And do you ever wish for a simpler life working for somebody else without the stress of running a company and being responsible for other people's mortgages? I think I had a good work-life balance and then we chose to have a baby. So <laughs> <laughs> so that um, personally, um, I'm a lot busier now than I've ever been. And obviously lockdown um, has compounded that. I don't wish for a simpler life, no. So once I left further, I absconded to Egypt for a couple of years and I worked as a diving instructor, which was a much more simple life, very simple day, didn't have to think about work outside of the hours of work. And essentially, I got super bored after a couple of years and wanted to get my head into something. So I think it's definitely a grass is always greener. It's good for me to stay busy. I think we've got to the stage now where we have got some kind of balance in that I'm not particularly worried about the company in terms of profitability or being responsible for our staff. I think it was um, Redico you spoke to, uh, listened to to your podcast with them. So we've always had a similar view in terms of like reserves. So we've always had a, a three month meet all expenses in the bank target, which we hit. And when COVID came about, that I think was a wake up call to, hmm, that, you know, bad things can really happen. So we made the decision to extend that to six months. So the idea is that we have enough cash that if everyone just said, no, we want to stop, pause, leave, whatever, we could carry on for six months and, and sort that situation out, which echoes what I think Redico said, which I think is a great approach. We're not overstretching like that. And I think that's one of the real benefits of this organic growth that we've got, you know, and we are, you know, don't get me wrong, we're, we're growing now at, I think, a, a healthy, well, very healthy rate, but it's not, doesn't feel rushed at all. So that's what gives me, you know, that balance. And I talk to staff about that a lot. So we do stuff like every six months, we have an anonymous staff survey to quiz how they're feeling about work and pay and relationships together. That's something I'm really focused on is does everyone in the team have that balance? Because we don't want people working late, um, you know, if it, if we can avoid it at all. Obviously, sometimes it does happen and, you know, we'll, we'll pay overtime for that and make it clear that that's not the norm. Um, because I think when it when people start doing that, it's insidious in that people start working late and then new people join and they see other people are working late. So they then mimic that behavior. And that's something we do want to avoid. Most of the agencies that I've spoken to so far, including Redico, are moving to a remote first or even 100% remote businesses. Do you think that working from home is good for people's mental health and can it negatively affect the work that an agency produces as well? The caveat here is what's happening currently isn't working from home because, you know, I've worked from home a lot before and it's certainly not good for my mental health what's happening at the moment, which is, you know, being cooped up and not allowed to see people and do all the things that as humans, most of us want to do. I don't think there's a, a fit or answer for is working at home good for people. Talking even to our team, we definitely have people that want to work from home and we definitely have people that want to be in the office. And we've always been a flexible business in that 
you know we've said by kind of default when you join you can have two days is kind of expected that you can work from home or anywhere you like and if you want more than that we just have to communicate and, and plan it because a lot of our we've been set up that you know we're not remote first so a lot of our kind of meetings and stuff were happening in person in in the studio but we've always been super flexible with that and when people work as well so i i think as long as it's well managed um remote can work fine so you've got agencies like neomam that i think do an amazing job and they're kind of completely remote it's a conversation that i've been having with john because we've had an advantage historically being in norwich in terms of just things are cheaper here than london which means as a knock-on effect you can be competitive with agency rates because you're not spending huge amounts of money on a you know swanky office on the other side of the coin to that is it puts us at a disadvantage for for remote first work right because if you're taking a remote job working from home, there's still that disparity of pay between Norwich, London and Seattle, wherever it is. So why would you choose to work somewhere where you're getting paid less? So remote first isn't a priority for us at the moment because until, and I think it will start to balance out because you know we've seen all kinds of COVID trends of people moving out of the city, um, remote, lots of bigger companies going remote first. And I think this will have an effect on the asymmetry we see in wages. And that will allow us, I think, to remain competitive and go remote first. I think that may well be in our longer term future, but near term, we're staying how we are in terms of kind of flexible working and you can work from where you want. But I imagine a lot of our talent will still come from the UK and more locally. Do you have a exit strategy as the owners of Candor or a succession plan? <laughs> I think I kind of got a little bit of trauma from my last year or so up further. I think they were setting up internally to look to exit, to look to trust the company up to sell it, which is great. And it's what companies have to do. Now, the fabric of how we've got Candor set up just isn't something, you know, like I mentioned with things like we don't have a lot of long-term contracts in place with clients. That makes it incredibly unappealing um, for someone obviously to to buy. And there's a whole other kind of raft of, of reasons for that. And I'm reluctant to change them because I think it would change the makeup of our agency. So I don't know if what we've got can exist and survive to a sale. So and um, I don't think we're, we're anywhere near having that kind of conversation seriously yet. Um, we have had a couple of different companies express interest in us, and I've just haven't taken the conversations further with them for, for that reason. I'd like to see where we end up with the kind of software and IP that we develop. And we are mentoring, so I'm mentoring the head of marketing in our team to essentially do my role. And same with John, we, there's definitely a succession plan in place because I think that's a smart thing to do anyway for the business to not make ourselves like completely vital to its operation. And it gives me bandwidth because there are several other kind of things I'm interested in where um, I think are related to Canada that we could do. So there's nothing kind of firmed up and I want to continue looking inwards while we move to keep everything happy rather than focusing too much on the future at the expense of the present. If you could give a newer agency founder one piece of advice, what would it be? There's loads of advice you could get that would be similar from a lot of different agency owners. So, I mean, what, my one bit of advice is that don't try and sell SEO to people. <laughs> and that, that sounds silly because obviously maybe that's what your agency is there to do. But in my experience, our best clients, our most profitable relationships, the longest term relationships are people that have 
essentially come to us and either said, you know, I need help getting more whatever it is, sales or leads, or they've come to us because they know what SEO is and they're saying, can can we please do that with you? The most difficult relationships we've had is when kind of people come to you and say, you know, they want more sales and it's like, well, I've heard about SEO and you're trying to convince them that it's a thing. And, you know, that's that's still happening in, in 2021, believe it or not, where people are super skeptical, you know, about what really are quite coming mature channels now. So I would just say pick your clients and, and know your value. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today on Agency Side. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Rob. Thank you for listening to Agency Side, sponsored by Netpillar.com. Visit agencyside.fm to subscribe, read the show notes, and listen to previous recordings. Tune in again soon for our next episode.